Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, name a J. Keith. Along with Diana Nawi, Keith is the curator of the forthcoming Prospect Triennial, Yesterday We Said Tomorrow, in New Orleans. The fifth edition of Prospect was scheduled to open this fall, but was postponed a year to October 23, 2021, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The exhibition will now run through January 23, 2022. Keith will join me to discuss what postponing a 51-artist show requires, especially for artists who had built their schedules around a 2020 timeframe. How postponing an exhibition of new work originally scheduled to open just a couple weeks before an American presidential election may change the triennial, and lots more. In addition to co-curating Prospect 5, Keith is the Vice President for Education and Public Programming at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. On the second segment, I'll chat with Indianapolis Museum of Art curator Kelly Morgan about her American art collection galleries. But before we get to this week's show, as you can surely tell, as the pandemic continues, we're continuing to expand our idea of what we might feature on the program this summer. In normal times, about two-thirds of our guests were artists. That's obviously fallen significantly in recent months. Good news ahead, though, as American museums reopen, especially in the Northeast and in the Midwest, much art museum programming is resuming as well. I'm beginning to plan our fall programs now, and it looks like artists will be back on our show and in full force. Should be a lot of fun. Please remember to give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple Podcasts and other places you get the show. And please tell a friend. That's the best way any podcast finds new listeners. Naima Keith, after the break. Experience Nasher Windows, a new series at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Providing exhibition space to North Texas-based artists, Nasher Windows highlights site-specific work or work made for exhibitions impacted by the pandemic shutdown. New artists are featured weekly until the building reopens. On view now through the entrance windows on Flora Street, Nasher Windows is an accessible way to engage with art safely while social distancing, free to the public. Learn more and plan a visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. The center remains closed due to coronavirus, but you can wex from home with exclusive live streams, virtual screenings, curator suggestions, learning resources for parents, and much more. Go to wexarts.org for events such as conversation with curators Lucy Zimmerman and Jennifer Lang and artist Stanya Khan. You'll also find a video tour of LaToya Ruby Frazier's The Last Cruise, with senior curator Michael Goodson and a collection of Modern Art Notes conversations with artists who've shown at the WEX. It's all at wexarts.org. And we're back. Naima Keith, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Tyler. It's great to be here. As I noted in my introduction, you have two jobs at the moment, as it were, and the one we're going to talk about today is just your co-artistic directorship of Prospect 5 coming up in New Orleans. Prospect, of course, was to have opened this fall, and a little while ago it was announced that it will now open next fall, in October of 2021. So let's start with the show that you and Diana Nawi have been planning. It's called Yesterday We Said Tomorrow. What did you envision Prospect 5 for 2020 to be? So as you mentioned, the exhibition, it, well, the triennial is, we, we came up with a title called Yesterday We Said Tomorrow. It was inspired by a Christian Scott album, who is a fantastic jazz musician from and based in New Orleans. 
The title of his album is actually Yesterday You Said Tomorrow, but we decided to change it to Yesterday We Said Tomorrow because we understood that given the kind of political context or the political moment that we're in and the show was going to open in, that people might automatically make the assumption that we're talking about President Trump. The show originally was going to open a month before or a few weeks before the election. And so we knew that it was going to be seen in a very particular lens. And so we didn't want to be pointing the finger at one particular person, but rather a collective and really kind of thinking about how history informs the present in all of its various forms. So not just one history, not just this current moment, but really kind of looking at how we got here, all the different kind of conversations. Are they new? Are they old? And and how have artists really kind of take on this, taken on this challenge of, of thinking about history and its like an impact on present day. So we were thinking about the fifth iteration of, of Prospect as a moment to kind of both reflect and on the past and also think about what the future may look like. In the midst of uh, you know months before we were uh, set to open, funny enough, we were actually on a kind of speaking tour, if you will. So we had been in New Orleans and then we had gone to New York the first week of March to announce the artist list when more and more news stories about COVID and the impact of COVID and the need to shut down were literally on the news during that week. And it became very clear fairly early on that we needed to have a hard discussion about postponing the exhibition. On one level, we were you know, very sad about that because we knew or we had obviously been working very hard towards opening in October. But we'd also, again, I think we're using the kind of the various moments or the various kind of conversations that we'd been having the last kind of two and a half years to inform the show opening at a very particular time. So, you know, yesterday we said tomorrow. However, I think what aided in us being able to kind of be okay with moving an extra year is because thinking about the past and thinking about, like I said, its impact is something we'll be doing forever, right? Like it's not going to end in 2020. And I also think that, you know, COVID on top of, you know, conversations around Black Lives Matter, we're going to need a little time, you know, to understand the complete impact that this has had on us. And so I think in a way we've, we're okay. (laughs) We have to be uh, for a number of reasons, but I also think that it's given us a little time to kind of have a little distance between, you know, COVID and, and all the different things that are happening right now and when the show opens and also giving artists that space too. And again, realizing that, conversations about history, conversations around influence, impact, who is going to be adversely impacted by, you know, what's happening right now, that we'll need a little time to process that. So I think we're going to unpack a lot of that as we go along here. But let's go back to the beginning of your and Ms. Nawi's conception of the show. You came up with a list of 51 artists, roughly speaking, one, one air quotes artist as a collective how and when did you come up with that list? And then I'm sure I'm using the wrong lingo here, but when did you charge artists with making the work that y'all expected would go on view in October 2020? So Diana and I officially accepted the roles as a co-artistic director, I want to say in May of or March of 2018. But Diana and I have actually known each other for quite some time. We were both young whippersnappers working at LAX Art. And so we, we in the early days, so we've known each other for a few years and we've stayed in contact. And then, you know, Diana guest curated a couple of shows at California African-American Museum where I was before joining the team at LACMA. And so we have been just talking about art and artists and, you know, shows and all those kinds of things off and on for a while. 
when we joined forces, if you will, for uh, Prospect New Orleans, while we both been to the city and visited the city and I've, I've been to every single prospect, we very much understood from the very beginning that we are guests, right? That we're neither of us are from New Orleans, that we don't necessarily have deep family ties there. And so we really did kind of use the first year of research to listen. We went down to the city as often as possible. We would stay in different neighborhoods that we could, and we drove while we were there. We tried to try as many restaurants as we could, of course, taking recommendations, met with artists informally over pizza and beer. I mean, we, we really wanted to just immerse ourselves as much as we could, but while acknowledging again that we are, you know, that we'll never be from there, but wanting to kind of honor and respect, I think, the creative, you know, creative community that, that exists in the city. And so the first year was really just listening while also, of course, just kind of thinking about what it is about the city that inspires us. What is it that because you can't argue with New Orleans, right? Like it's it is both the perfect and most like stimulating and complex backdrop to have an exhibition, right? Because it has such a lively and historic and complicated history that to try and fight against that or not totally embrace that just for us wouldn't make any sense. So I think that listening to her was both an opportunity to get to know the creative community, but also to get to know the city and to kind of better understand, okay, who artist-wise could complement, I think, not just some of the ideas that were percolating, but also I think who's who could develop a project that could really amplify, I guess, or complicate or, you know, all the things around the city as well. Because, you know, Prospect is very much situated in the city just as much as it is in formal institutions. And so I said the first year, like I said, was was such a 2018 and 2019 was about kind of listening and just kind of throwing artists around and looking and going to as many shows as possible. And I would say it really wasn't until maybe mid 2019 that we really narrowed down the artist list. We thought about, you know, how are artists looking at history? How have artists, you know, who are some unexpected choices? Who are some artists who maybe have connections to the city or the South um, that people might not know about. So there were a lot of, I think, different factors that went into choosing the artist list. But I would say that we we didn't go into it with a kind of preset idea uh, of who was going to be on that list. So as you talked with artists about an October 2020 opening and, you know, a delivery date of work in many or probably most cases, you know, being a little before that, how did having conversations with artists go back in March as you told them, eh, hold on here? So I think, you know, first and foremost, we tried to tell them as early as possible, right? We we wanted to just kind of clue them into, hey, you know, we're letting you know this is what we're thinking about. When we make a decision, we'll let you know. But just, you know, kind of getting them into the conversation as early as possible. Some, I think, were completely, they completely understood, right? Especially the artists who are based in New York. They knew just given how quickly and how seriously uh, New York was taking, amongst many other cities, but New York was taking COVID that they were like, okay, you know, <laughs> we completely understand. Some artists were understandably disappointed, right? I think especially the New Orleans-based artists. They were excited about including being included in Prospect. And I think that it was a moment for them to be seen you know, in this international context. And then also, you know, just to show off to friends and family. And, you know, so I think while there was certainly a little bit of disappointment, I think most, if not all of the artists completely understood. And they knew that there was just no way to predict kind of like, would we be allowed to fly down to New Orleans in the fall? Like, what was shipping of the work look like? Like, you know, visiting the city before installation might be impossible. You know, all of these things would 
affect, I guess, their ability to properly pull off their projects. So I think that they realize that even if the desire was there, that that their project may may get may be compromised because of just the restrictions that are in place. So, but I, again, I would say that most, uh, if not all, were uh, completely understanding. For me, one of the most interesting things about the forced delaying of the show, the way the pandemic has has changed what the, the timeline of what you're doing, gets back to what you mentioned earlier, that you had been planning to open in October of 2020, several weeks before a particularly charged election, what was inevitably will inevitably be a really racially charged election. How have artists communicated to you about whether October 2021 is a different enough moment in the context of that election that they might have to do something different or want to do something different? To be completely honest, I think one of our, I don't say fears is not the right word, but we were kind of like, I wonder how many artists are going to want to change their project now that they're kind of given an extra year. Like, I wonder... And not that any of the artists were making work directly about Trump or about the election per se, but, you know, we I think we warned them pretty early on, just like FYI, like this is the context of which, you know, this is it's going to be in the midst of these conversations. But no one came to us that I, I definitely want to make a overtly political work. That being said, I would say, and like I said, we were when we we're reaching out to folks individually in the back of our minds, we were like, what would we do? <laughs> Since there's so many things in motion, right? The catalog, you know, information circulating about, you know, what certain projects are going to be. So there was a little bit of, oh God, like what would, <laughs> what would happen if if there was a radical shift in the project? But I would say most of the artists are staying the course. I think that they think that no matter when they debut this particular project, that it's going to have resonance, right? That it's it's because I, you know, even a year in now, several years into Trump's presidency, I think we're still shocked and in disbelief with half the things he says. So I think that like, I'm not saying that whether or not Trump gets elected again is another thing, but I think we'll still be talking about this moment for a while, right? This is not something that's going to go away. So I think that most artists have decided to kind of stay the course. I think some want a little time to kind of figure out, okay, if I change my project, what would it look like? Like no one's kind of come back to us and say, and said, this is how I want to change my project and this is the new direction. I think most have said, I think I want to say the course, but I also want just a little bit of time to think about if I were to make changes, like what that would look like. So yeah, I, I would I would say that most, like I said, have have decided to kind of stick with their original ideas. So speaking of the American moment and how a lot has stayed the same as ever, but also there have been specific things that have happened in, in, in the month before we're talking, both in terms of the movement for Black Lives in terms of how Americans have, addre- have addressed monuments to white supremacy in their midst and continue to do so yesterday, today, um, as, as, as we're talking, has the continued strength of those movements over the last month either changed what artists have told you they want to do, uh, that maybe they want to change what they're doing in terms of the address of that particular movement, or has it changed your approach, your curatorial approach to the show or your programming unit's approach to the show? One of the first conversations that Diane and I had in my living room, actually, is just how often the word unprecedented is used. It feels like every day, <laughs> especially around this presidency, the word, unpre- this is unprecedented. This is unpre- this is unprecedented. Like it just kind of, to the point where you're almost kind of ignoring it a little, you know, but, and I think that's, I think, what started us thinking about history and and how we've gotten here. Like, is this really unprecedented? Like maybe some of the things he's saying, maybe the context, maybe the use of Twitter, you know, those kinds of things, okay, are quote unquote new. 
but the rhetoric, the, you know, the racism, like all those kinds of things, police brutality, like all those things are not new. And, and they have been systematically enforced and reinforced for years. So I think we were just kind of like, you know, thinking about that word and how often it's used, but then also questioning what about this moment is unprecedented. And I think we still feel that way. Right. And I think that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement was not born because of George Floyd. Like we have been yelling and screaming and wanting Black Lives to Matter for years. And so I think we, again, I think still feel that we will be reflecting on the impact of this moment for years to come. And that certainly will be next year. I think in terms of artists, Again, I think they also still want that space. I, I, I think that the, you know, the passing of George Floyd has happened so recently that artists are still trying to understand wh- what is my voice? How do I want to use it? What will that look like? How will my work be impact, you know, impacted? You see several artists doing kind of social justice work, which is amazing, or using you know, the sale of their work to benefit certain you know, organizations. But in terms of like how it impacts their work, I think they've they've asked us, you know, to kind of say like, this is certainly a profound moment. On the flip side, I think certain artists have said, is this work important enough right now, right? Like in light of the the significance of the conversations that are happening, is my interest in this particular topic, will it come off as being like tone deaf or insignificant or not to say they're going to switch and make work about Black Lives Matter, but just to say that there's like a certain there's there's clearly a a desire for artists, museums, you know, curators to to speak to this moment. And I think there's a, a perhaps a worry that if you're not speaking to this moment, that it maybe won't come off as being as urgent or as necessary uh, right now. But again, I think that because we have the the privilege of time where there will be a little bit of distance between, you know, this moment and next year, that I think it'll, you know, kind of play itself out a little bit more. One of the things that we've seen happen and really accelerate in the last few weeks is that groups of Americans have taken it upon themselves to free their cities from monuments to white supremacy. New Orleans is a city particularly rich in the history of white supremacy and and the Confederacy, both in terms of monuments, but also in terms of its institutions and its archives. So, for example, Benjamin Palmer was um, the leader of New Orleans' first Presbyterian church in the 1850s and 60s, and that church kind of became the the base church of Confederate ideology. In fact, it was made it, it was made into such by a man named William Anderson Scott, who who then brought that ideology into California in the mid 1850s. And Scott's and Palmer's papers are, are are there, and the church is still there too, although it's a different church, a different place. So have you thought about or worried about or had any kinds of thoughts about what happens if an artist plans something for or your programming team plans something for a site that is changed in the next year in an unplanned way? Of course, I'm a little biased, but I, I do think that Prospect is one of the organizations and has produced the kind of exhibitions that is not, they have not historically been afraid, nor are we currently, been afraid to think about the importance and the historical significance of site, right? So whether or not, you know, Kara Walker's project being at Algiers Point or, you know, 
very intentionally citing projects in the Lower Ninth Ward for Prospect One, knowing that it had been completely ravaged, you know, by Hurricane Katrina, or, you know, picking very particular sites that had, you know, a, a, a certain oftentimes complex and, and, you know, history, and then, you know, allowing artists to kind of take on that site and, and put an artwork there that could elicit a certain type of conversation. So I would say that, you know, Prospect, I think, has almost come to be known as the kind of organization that is open and willing to do that. Artists have come to us wanting very particular sites. I think we are game, you know, to support them in that. Some artists have declined, you know, certain spaces because they're like, you know, this is a little too weighted and, you know, just historically problematic and have said, no, we're going <laughs> to, I don't want the site to kind of overshadow the, the work itself. So, yeah, I think we're... We're both prepared, I think, have embraced taking on or allowing artists to take on sites, you know, whose history is evolving all the time. Because we know that if anyone, you know, that could do it, that artists, I think, could certainly point to both the complexity of the site, but then also, I think, it's its possible future. So it sounds like if a site is changed out from under you unexpectedly, that you're game and ready to roll with it. I mean, we cry behind the scenes. Uh <laughs> Because obviously we put a lot of TLC into, you know, just blood, sweat and tears into cultivating a certain site. But that's also, you know, just historically what's happened at Prospect too, as well, where, because sometimes it'll, you know, the, the plot of land will sell or now it's, uh, for some reason we can't show there. So it's like logistical things that have happened in the past. And then there's, yeah, maybe historical circumstances or just what the circumstances of that site have changed too. So, yeah, we, we, we try and be as prepared as possible, but, you know, don't, don't get it twisted. We, we do cry <laughs> first. And then we're kind of like cursing and like, oh, God, what are we going to do? And then we just, you know, just pick ourselves back up and keep pushing on. I think we're the most afraid of that because now we have so much more time, right? So when we were opening in October, it was pretty unlikely that we were going to lose any of the sites that we've been working towards. Now with a year out, I mean... We've had a pandemic, we've had, you know, uprising. So there's, who knows what the heck is going to happen in a year and a half. So I think we're a little fearful about that now. It's one thing for painters to adjust to making and showing work after a year's delay caused by a pandemic. It's a really different thing for performance artists and especially for artists whose performances often tend toward the durational as I look at E.J. Hill's name on your artist list, I, I feel great empathy for, <laughs> for him. How have you had conversations with artists who, presuming there are artists planning performances, how have you had those conversations with those artists about rescheduling or in the case particularly of durational performances, being able to do what they want to do at a time when we don't know where the pandemic will be? You know, that, that time being 2021, we don't know if we'll have a vaccine or not, et cetera. I think we've, you know, said exactly what you just said, right? I think I think when it comes to artists or just people in general, I think people just want honesty, right? So I think we've said, look, we are committed, you know, to supporting your project. We are committed to making sure that it is exactly, you know, what you want it to be. We are committed to working as hard as we can to maintain the same uh, location that we have been working towards. But we honestly don't know, you know, when folks will be able to, you know, travel a little bit more freely or when we'll be able to enter these spaces 
you know, we don't know when there's going to be a vaccine. Like, there's a lot of things we don't know. And so I think we just try and lead with a little bit of honesty and, you know, just try and just, you know, keep in contact as, as much as possible. But we do recognize that, you know, that this loss of time is hitting, you know, artists who are either doing like performance or, you know, as you mentioned, durational work, like it's hitting them particularly hard because they can't leave their apartments, but they, you know, they, they really can't fly down to New Orleans as often as we would have liked to been able to bring them down to prepare, you know, for, for the show. So, yeah, I think we've just, like I said, we've tried to be as honest as, but there were so many unknowns that I think for us to then give them like absolutes, I think would just be a little, would be foolish. So, you know, I think all museums are, I think it's Prospect, but, you know, I also work at LACMA. Like, I think there's a lot of like, okay, we're just going to, you know, plan in the like immediate future and then cross the bridge when we know <laughs> that we can get to the other side kind of thing. But yeah, it, it has been difficult to think through performance and durational stuff and, you know, just anything that's requires that you be on site, I think, a lot more than, than a painter or some other, you know, sculptor or th- those kinds of things. So it sounds like you haven't run into scheduling conflicts that have required artists to drop out or choose you or someone else. Not yet. I mean, my fingers are, even though you can't see me, my fingers are crossed right now. I mean, I that, again, I think we tried to, like, you know, make the decision early that we were postponing. Like, I think, I mean, relatively early, I think we tried to kind of like, okay, and because we're a small organization, that we can kind of make these bigger decisions quickly. So we we tried to, again, kind of give folks an idea that, okay, this is what we're thinking about. These are the implications of that move. This is when we're thinking about making that move. Do you see any conflicts, you know, right now with your schedule? And admittedly, you know, everyone is was in the, and continues to be in the, like, I don't know when my show, you know, my shows at these other institutions are going to be. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of, like, schedule shifting happening. So I think that the artists certainly appreciated the fact that we, you know, relatively early kind of came out and said, we're, we're moving it to October 2021. And we haven't had, no, we have not had any artists drop out because of schedule conflicts. Thank God. As we tape this, and as we referenced a moment ago, there's increasing optimism that there will be a COVID-19 vaccine available as early as the end of this year, um, the end of 2020, which would be 10 months before you're scheduled to open. There is a reasonable possibility that there is a substantial degree of normalcy when you open. There's also certainly a non-zero possibility that we are not. Have you thought through or had to think through how presenting, installing, showing, making available to the public art and artists may have to be next October? Or is that someone else's job? Like I said, we're a small but mighty team. And so Diana and I are thankfully, I think, a part of all just, you know, pretty much every decision or just I think Diana and I are well aware (laughs) that we may have to think about social distancing and, and masks and cleaning protocols and all those kinds of things for next October. But honestly, I think we're secretly, maybe not so secretly hoping that we have a vaccine, um, just given how many people are focused on this issue. I, I think we're probably going to wait until closer to maybe January to make a decision as to like, okay, how would this impact visitors' ability to see this project? Like, what would that look like? Exa- you know, Or do we need to change the venue because of X, Y, and Z, you know, those kinds of things. I think we're, not that we have just endless venues, so it's not like we can just hop around the entire city, but just to say that I think we're waiting until January to kind of really make a hard decision about what COVID precautions we need to put in place to be able to welcome visitors. But I think right now, I think we're hoping, anticipating, expecting for us to be as close to normal as possible next October. That's, that's of course, what we'd like. 
we all because we don't want people to be afraid to even travel down to the city. You know, New Orleans has been hurt, hurt uh, hit pretty hard with you know with with the COVID cases, and so that was also a factor, you know, in us moving the show that we knew that there might be some you know, concern around traveling down to the city, like even in October, none of us knew it was going to go on for this long, but just the idea that even in March, we were kind of like, oh, we don't want folks to skip seeing the exhibition or, you know, to kind of demand like a virtual (laughs) exhibition because they don't feel comfortable coming down to the city. So yeah, like I said, I think we're waiting until January. We kind of figure out like, okay, if we need to implement these type of safety protocols, like what would that, what, what would it look like then? Are we still wearing masks? Do we have to have like a sanitizer spray station? Like you just spray your whole body. Like, I don't, you know, we don't, we're not sure yet, but uh, yeah, I think we're, we're like everyone else kind of watching the news closely and, and just hoping that there's a vaccine later on this year. You know, Prospect is really very much a, a show you need to experience, right? Like it's just as, as I talked about before, just how much of a role New Orleans plays in seeing the exhibition that like, you know, it, it's not something you could see online. You know, sure, there's installation images and we'll try and provide as much as possible, but, you know, walking into some of these, you know, areas, or like we talked about a little bit earlier, like some of these contested sites is just as much a part of the experience as it is seeing the work itself. And so we would, you know, we, we really hope that as much of that is we, we can avoid as uh, trying to compromise as much as that is possible. Finally, we've been talking inevitably about the challenges of a year long delay and the challenges of pandemic and, and, and the uprisings that have been going on across America in the last month. But, but, you know, flipping the coin a bit, have have you found pleasures in the delay, new ideas, new opportunities, anything about things about the the delay and the present that have unexpectedly brought joy to the project? Yes. And I love ending on that question because I also, yes, I think a lot of the conversation around COVID has just been all like negative. <laughs> I, I think understandably, again, it's a, it's a, you know, a, a horrible virus. But just to say that when you're planning for an exhibition, oftentimes, you know, the, the months leading up to it, you are on full speed, like you are like running. And we, you know, we're in the midst of trying to finish out the book and, you know, make selections on artworks and fly artists down and, you know, all these kinds of things. And because of just the amount of time that was left, there were certain loans that we couldn't consider, or there were certain works that we couldn't, you know, because some museums have, you know, time specifications on loans, right? Like, you know, certain museums like, oh, it has to be a year out or a minimum of two years out if you want to uh, borrow a particular thing, or if it was going to be another show. And so the year actually has been, I don't want to say a blessing in disguise, but has has allowed us to kind of sit back a little bit and not be running at full speed and to kind of take a second look at, you know, either something we've written or, you know, maybe now it's like, oh, now we actually have the time to borrow this work that we really wanted that we just couldn't because, it was within the same year or, you know, so the, I, I think there, or give the artists a little bit of breathing space or not kind of like running at that, you know, full speed. And they have this kind of quarantine time to think about not just their work for prospect, but just about their practice overall. So I, you know, as sad as we were to not open up, the, to open up the show in October, it has given us the time to just kind of like take a breath and say, okay, I've given the time is the is this the strongest group of work that we want to show? You know, from an artist that maybe is no longer with us, or you know, or what? How can we kind of push this artist a little bit further, or how can we think about this site differently? And also, I think it's allowed us to realize that our theme and our our title is not just beholden to 2020; that it can stand the test of time, hopefully. So yeah, I think that I think that the year it, it's been nice to kind of like 
step off the hamster wheel, take a breath, kind of look, you know, is this the show we want to put on? Yes. Now we have the time to change anything and then we can, you know, move forward. What we didn't get a chance to, to talk about is that one of the, another reason why, besides the pandemic <laughs> of canceling the, well, that postponing the exhibition, I canceling, like postponing the exhibition is fundraising. We really do use the year kind of leading up to the opening of the show to, to fundraise, you know, prospect fundraises from zero pretty much every cycle. And it would have been incredibly difficult, if not impossible, you know, for us to, to fundraise in this moment. I mean, I couldn't even imagine going to, you know, collectors into, you know, um, to galleries and saying, or whomever, uh, foundations and say, you know, I know there's a pandemic, <laughs> but would you fund this exhibition? Like they would just look at us like we were crazy. So as important as exhibitions are, I think there's certainly obviously bigger things that need to be addressed. So I, I think postponing has also allowed us to kind of take the pressure off of needing to fundraise for an entire exhibition right now. <laughs> And then conversely, for us to have, if we didn't raise certain amounts of money, that we would have to make cuts in the exhibition. So I think that, the, again, the time has kind of given us the gift of space and, and breathing room and, and opportunities to like really talk through, like Diane and I, you know, still talk every day uh, just about some, you know, some aspect of the project, but also just thinking about, you know, the artists that we've been thinking about and this moment and, and certainly talking to the artists about this moment as well. Because again, I couldn't imagine saying, "Hey, artist, you know, can I know there's no one in quarantine, and I know you know there's a protest that you want to attend, but let's talk about shipping dates." You know, like I, it just it just would have seemed a little insensitive. So again, I think that the time has has kind of taken the pressure off a bit, and yeah, allowed us to kind of like regroup, refocus, and then gear up for 2021. Can't wait, Naima Keith. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Ebony G. Patterson, While the Dew is Still on the Roses, featuring the work of artist Ebony G. Patterson, born in Jamaica in 1981. This is the most significant exhibition of the artist's work to date, presented within a new installation environment that evokes a night garden. This exhibition will be on view at the Nasher Museum when it is safe to reopen. The museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the art press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Explore art from home. Explore art from home with Getty. Visit online exhibitions such as Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, and Bauhaus, Building the New Artist. Watch videos about art making and conservation, as well as hundreds of art history talks. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. And listen to interviews with artists, writers, curators, and scholars to hear about their current projects and concerns. Learn more at getty.edu art. Welcome back. A few weeks ago, Jillian Steinhauer and I did a listener Q&A episode, which was a lot of fun. One of the questions we received was about how a museum curator of historical European art, in this case, Lisa Small of the Brooklyn Museum, might rethink narratives within her collection galleries. That question prompted me to reach out to Kelly Morgan, 
a curator of American art at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, who has been thinking through these ideas in relation to a fairly typical American Art Museum American collection. Kelly Morgan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's my pleasure to be here. You recently undertook a project to reinstall the Indianapolis Museum of Art's Galleries of American Art. And as you and I both know, art museum collections of 19th century American art tend to feature almost entirely white makers. Can you give us an idea of what you had to work with in the Indy collection? What Black artists from the 19th and, say, first decade or so of the 20th century are absent from the IMA collection? Did you thus not have the ability to, to play with, present, and interpret? And, and who is and was there? Well, in all honesty, Tyler, there was one. 1867, yeah. Yes, we do have a Robert Selden Duncanson, a really beautiful landscape. And other than that, you know, there was there's nobody. Right. So let me just jump in with the nobody. There is no Joshua Johnson, no Edmonia Lewis, no Bannister, no Tanner. There is a Tanner Stewart in the Indianapolis collection, William Edward Scott, a painting from 1912. There's no Aaron Douglas. And then Black artists begin to be present in the IMA collection with two works, one a painting from Jacob Lawrence and one painting by Horace Pippen. The Jacob Lawrence painting is a long-term loan. We do have two Jacob Lawrence prints. But yeah, you're pretty much right. There is an Augusta Savage. So yeah, it's it's scant. But most museum collections, <laughs> right, are are scanned in that area. One, I'm a critical race cultural historian. You know, I'm not a traditional art historian. One very key foundation, you know, to my curatorial practice is using, right, so reinterpreting works by white artists, you know, from the colonial period you know, through the antebellum period, Civil War, you know, through the 19th century and early 20th century to tell stories about communities of color, artists of color, indigenous nations, the like. Because what I found out in just doing archival research, not just here at IMA, which started with a painting that I was working with at the Birmingham Museum of Art, you can find people of color attached to either the artist or, or the object just through archival research. So that got me thinking, thinking about that one painting. Um, it was painting by W.S. Hedges, 1837, maybe? I'm probably getting the, the year not totally right. Um, but it was called a race meeting at Jacksonville. And, you know, it was a, pretty much about, you know, the presence of free people of color and like the social activities of free people of color and white folks and black folks, you know, in Jacksonville, Alabama. And so I said, well, if this is the case, you know, if this painting exists in this one institution, in one city, in one state, imagine how many stories we are missing or just have been uh, deliberately erased, right, deliberately buried or deliberately ignored. When you think about artwork in the 19th century in American art museums. So I kind of put a pin in that, moved a path of did the exact same thing with their Benjamin West painting, Penn's Treaty with the Indians. And it was really interesting with that painting because I was actually, it was ancestral research. Literally, if it was seeing if that painting had been interpreted differently, as much as it's connected to the first family of Philadelphia, you know, the Maury family, as well as the Penn family, 
it could also be linked to the two most prominent African-American families in colonial Philadelphia. So I was like, okay, same, you know, ask myself same question. You know, this is just one painting and one institution in one city, right, in one state. Did you find opportunities to do that within the collection from the 19th century in Indianapolis? Or did you kind of have to wait, as it were, until you got into the early 20th? Not yet. So as the reinstallation is scheduled, like in terms of our exhibition schedule, the way that it's structured is it's in phases. <laughs> so this first, this current phase, or this first phase is purely colonial work, which is helpful for me because our colonial collection is like tiny, you know, but it's really small, but it's really great stuff. And how I kind of bridge that gap or fill those holes, quote unquote, is through using contemporary work. So it actually hasn't happened yet. It's actually slated to open in June of 2021. But because the idea or like the sort of news of me doing it has gotten around the field, people think I've already completed it. <laughs> and we actually haven't started it yet. We actually haven't even started it yet. But I do have the concepts concept or the interpretation kind of conceptualized. The other aspect of it that I'm attempting to bring Black voices or voices of color into the narrative is that I'm having the community, so people who are Black and brown people who live in the communities that surround the, in, the institution, write the interpretation with me in our interpretation team. As we get into the early 20th century, there are a couple things you've done in the galleries. One of them involves, perhaps unexpectedly, a Tiffany window. It does. I call it, I call it the museum's sacred space. Yeah, the, the the window is called Angel of the Resurrection. It was designed for Tiffany by Frederick Wilson, about whom I know nothing. Tell us what you saw, found, realized, recognized in, in, in that window. And mind you, this is not a room-sized window. This is, you know, like, like we would have in a room in our house. This is a massive, big Tiffany thing. <laughs> yeah, it was commissioned for a church, actually, here in Indianapolis as a homage to Benjamin Harrison. It was commissioned by his widow to sort of pay homage to him as a son of Indiana, as well as being the 23rd president. And I don't remember the actual date that IMA acquired it, but pretty much the space that it's in, we call it the Rotunda, so it's a round gallery. 1972, by the way. And it's pretty much been there, right? you know, since we acquired it. And it really is a very contemplative space. So, you know, yoga takes place in, in that gallery. You can find people having these kind of really spiritual moments, you know, or just, con you know, quiet, contemplative sort of self-introspective moments. And the Tiffany windows on one, you know, sort of on one side of the gallery and then facing it is a really ethereal white female nude by William McGregor Paxson. So... When I initially assumed the position, you know, going up there, I was like, this is really interesting. To me, it was observing the window which depicts Archangel Michael, you know, sort of raising us off from the day at the second coming of Christ. And Wilson clads him in like the chain mail as, in a, as a knight, you know, like this crusading knight. And he has his, I think it's his right arm kind of raised. And then you think, you know, raising the dead, whatever. But again, as a critical race culture historian, I was like, that's real Gilded Age, you know, <laughs> clan signification. Hmm. You know, and then looking across 
the gallery at, again, at this white female nude, I was like, oh, okay. And then what was actually happening or what was the kind of the reasoning, right? That, you know, you have the, re- the redemption period takes place where you have these quote unquote, right? Crusading knights saving the South from newly freed African-Americans and the fictive reasoning was the protection of white femininity. So again, in my mind, I was like, this isn't coincidental due to the fact that Again, Benjamin Harrison is was its twenty third president. He was in the you know he served in the Union Army. You know, however, during his presidency, lynching was at its highest. And so, again, thinking about the broader cultural histories and how to bring that in to visitors' understanding that American art is also propaganda. This depends on whose propaganda it is, you know. So due to the fact that both the window and the painting, you know, were crafted during that the sort of Gilded Age or what we come to know as the Gilded Age. But in African-American history, and I think even more specific American history, it's called the Nadir because the urban north was able to industrialize in the way that it was, right, because Jim Crow segregation and sort of the re-enslavement of free African-Americans is happening in the South. And so I saw that that narrative kind of played for me and I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll come back to this, right? You can't like start a position and just jump into that. So, <laughs> so I waited and as the universe would have it, a private collector who's had a really close relationship with the institution, you know, since the nineties owned or owns a Robert Colescott in the title of that painting is To No One's Past is the Key to the Future Saint Sebastian. And that particular painting is a figure sort of rendered in that typical Saint Sebastian iconography. But the figure is half white woman, half black male, right? And then behind this Saint Sebastian figure is a white male a bust of a white male and a bust of a black woman, right? With nooses sort of connecting the four figures together. So when the collector reached out and he said, yeah, he said, you know, hey, Kelly, you know, I have this painting, downsizing, uh, would you like it? And I was like, absolutely. (laughs) And he said, where are you going to put it? I said, in the Rotunda Gallery. And I had already done a couple of smaller, because I like to call these things, you know, gallery interventions. So I'd done a couple of smaller interventions to see how the public would react, to see how docents would react, and just the overall kind of museum community. Let me jump in with a couple of underlining details. The title of the Paxton, uh, and I am not making this up, is Glow of Gold, Gleam of Pearl, which makes the whiteness of the subject all the more shouting. It's a 1906 work, and it is a larger-than-life-size nude, relatively rare thing in American art. The Tiffany windows are roughly 28 feet long and 14 feet high, and they came into the IMA collection in 1972 as a gift from the First Meridian Heights Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis, a church, I assume, that descended from First Presbyterian which was the church that purchased the windows and installed them in 1905. When you're conceiving an installation such as the one you've described and are developing the ideas you outlined, do you put them in a wall text and that's it, you're done? Or are there ways in which you try to extend the ways in which those ideas permeate the institution? So typically, with particularly with the Rotunda reinstall, 
I spent a lot of time with the docents, you know, so we did basically, it was like teaching a critical race theory class (laughs) and teaching reconstruction, post-reconstruction history, which a lot of people just don't really know. Or, Or think isn't applicable to the North. True. Yeah, that's another, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. You know, so there were those sessions and then all of a sudden they just kind of stopped. You know, there were like some staff changes and this, you know, narrative of what this should be, this should kind of live in our education department. And so I was kind of written out of that equation. But again, me being the troublemaker that I am, I just started meeting with the docents, you know, outside of the institution. And, you know, to continue those, you know, to continue those conversations. Let me jump in real quick with a quick explanation on docents. For non-American listeners, docents are volunteers, typically, who kind of sit between the institution and the community. So when people visit the museum, it is quite often volunteer docents who have been guided through an understanding of an artwork or an installation by the education or curatorial staff. It is quite often the docents who are the, the literal eyes and mouth and and human embodiment of the institution when people come and visit. So, I mean, this has been my experience with docents at all of the institutions I've worked for, but coming here, it was really interesting because there was a group who were concerned, you know, about issues, you know, very interested and very concerned, particularly with so many school groups of kids of color, right, coming in. And they had taken upon themselves to study African-American art history, to study African-American cultural history. I was shocked, or not so much shocked, but I was so like elated because they had read some pretty heavy stuff. (laughs) And, you know, within my first couple of weeks, you know, introduced themselves to me and said, you know, Kelly, we've been really interested in this stuff, but we haven't always felt as confident because we're like, you know, older middle-aged white women that we don't necessarily know because it wasn't, again, it wasn't a museum initiative. You know, it was just a group of them who had gotten together. And I said, oh, absolutely, you know, we need more white women, you know, to to take that initiative, particularly like, you know, of your generation and your age group. So I was ecstatic, you know, about it. So I knew that I would have like their support, you know, for majority of what I was planning to do in the galleries. To answer your, you know, initial question of like what the extension is, it's really me, like I said, again, in the docents, you know, who are adamant about it not just lead tours, but may even hold seminars in to explain it, you know, so people can register and they can come. There were a couple um, of programs that we did, you know, where um, I did a few and and some of our lead docents, you know, did a few of those. Outside of that, I have like what I call these, like I said, gallery interventions or these other vignettes based on also loans, you know, that private collectors around the country, you know, have been willing to give me to kind of extend the narrative or to at least show visitors that something different, you know, is happening in the American galleries. Because <laughs> the American galleries haven't changed much since, I would say, 2012. How much time does it take to do and share a repositioning or a reinterpreting of, of a couple of artworks in the sense that, you know, there may be, just for the sake of round numbers, in an in institution's American art galleries, there might be a hundred works, and we just talked about two. So full installation would probably take about five years, you know, if not longer, which is why it's happening in pieces. 
you know, as somebody that's doing kind of like anti-racism, curatorial activism, right, as well as, you know, critical race, curatorial analysis, even just to do, you know, those short installations, you know, based based on, you know, the loans that come up, it takes me at least, you know, five to six months. So for a thorough institutional reexamination of its American galleries, and we're picking just one curatorial area, many museums are, you know, 10, 12, 15, 18 departments or areas, it sounds like you're saying this can't really be a one-person initiative. There has to be a thorough institutional commitment there, too. Oh, absolutely. Because it would it changes everything else. You know, something I've, you know, I've said since I've been here, or at least when I first got here, right? Because, you know, you start doing the work. Even in the small ways in which I've done it, it was the same thing at PAFA, you know, and then the white supremacy culture starts to rear its head. It starts to push back. And, you know, and I've said to my leadership there, as well as the the leadership here at IMA, like, you can't hire a curator like me to do this work and not change everything else. It's everything. So, you know, the one exhibition that I did do was my Samuel Levi Jones show, Left of Center, you know, which dealt with all of these issues in in terms of, you know, and just in regards of contemporary art and everything that had to happen to that, you know, with that show, you know, in terms of fundraising, in terms of marketing, because it required different mechanisms. I was doing all of that work and not by myself, of course, but it was definitely not an institutional buy-in from top to bottom as it would have been for any other major exhibition. We don't know how to market, you know, to black communities. So we're just going to send it out, you know, in these, and it was like these very kind of quiet ways. And I was like, well, that's not going to (laughs) work, you know? So I took it upon myself and many of my other colleagues to market it to black communities. Same thing with the fundraising, right? Where it was like, we don't know exactly who we can ask, you know, or how to necessarily engage black donors. So our one black, you know, development officer took it upon herself to kind of build the fundraising momentum for it. It was just like these types of these types of ways that, you know, museums don't necessarily and not don't necessarily, they don't. They don't have the structures, you know, for this kind of work. So if you're reinstalling an entire section of the permanent collection to create a more inclusive narrative, to include more culturally relevant content. I would say just the research portion of it, Tyler, like just the research to make sure that that the institution itself is doing it properly would take two years. That's one of the frustrations that I'm having right now, you know, is that because a lot of the work that I've done here at IMA, actually not a lot of it, all of it has demonstrated, you know, just how badly, you know, the institution needs anti-racism and inclusivity, implicit bias training unequivocally, you know, from top to bottom. And there have been, you know, some of my other colleagues who have done programs or who have done, you know, exhibitions or made particular acquisitions about more culturally relevant things or things that are dealing with, you know, police brutality or race, class, gender, sexuality, you know, you name it. You know, again, these same iterations, right, of white supremacy culture or white patriarchal culture, you know, rears its head. You know, in terms of my, you know, American reinstallation, I'm like, it can't happen if the institution doesn't do that training first. So even before you can start the research for something, (laughs) you know, or even decide that you're going to reinstall a whole collection, you have to take the temperature of the institution to see if they're even capable 
right, of creating the space for that, for the reinstall and like the narrative, right, of the reinstall to even happen because the pushback is ridiculous. And, you know, that's something that's, again, kind of frustrating me about what I'm calling, you know, this current come to Jesus moment that the museum field is having, you know, because of Black Lives Matter and the heinous murder of George, of George Floyd. One of my biggest, I wouldn't necessarily say complaints, but like, you know, just kind of question, you know, to the, to the numerous museum directors, you know, funding org CEOs that I've talked to in the last two weeks, it's like, yes, we know that, the, you know, this is an urgent moment. Right. Nobody's denying that. However, where was the museum world's urgency when Trayvon Martin died, when Sandra Bland died, when Eric Garner was murdered, when Tamir Rice was murdered? Like this is, you know, George Floyd's murder is was not it's not like an anomaly. (laughs) You know, you know, that's my one thing. The second thing was a lot of the solutions, you know, and questions that are being asked, that museums are asking themselves, you know, that other folks from the outside are asking museums, are the same questions, you know, that were being asked in the 90s, you know, which were very similar to the questions that were being asked in the 70s. You know, so it's like two, you know, every 20 years, you know, we kind of have this crisis moment. Oh, my God, we need to change. And nothing ever happens because the conversation is never about how institutions are not actually designed to make this kind of change. Too many art museums are invested in confirming the canon rather than challenging it. Yes. I'm at a place, you know, in my career right now where I'm tired. (laughs) You know, I say all the time, I'm so tired of talking to different white people about the same stuff. (laughs) And, you know, it's very clear that it's purposeful. You know, it's very clear that it's not an issue of like, oh, you know, museum directors or board members don't know, or, you know, even high level, you know, management, senior leadership. It's not that they don't know. The evidence is, it clearly demonstrates that they don't care. And what happens when we start approaching the work from that perspective? It's really interesting to take into account the sort of falsehood of art museum missions, right? So this idea that, you know, it's a place for everybody, you know, and it's a place where people can be, you know, equal, this, that, and the other thing has never been true. And we know it's never been true. You know, the idea of because museums care for collections, you know, they are, you know, inherently caring spaces and institutions. Also something that we know has never been true. I was to say, and not just only in regards to, you know, museums being so white in these communities of color, but just the class, you know, oppression and hierarchy that happens within institutions, you know, interns and graduate assistants, you know, are treated like dirt. You know, you have, I mean, just the sexual harassment, you know, gender inequity. And then conservators and registrars and preparators, same thing, you know, are treated like just total crap. All of my institutions, including <laughs> IMA, you know, I've, I've stepped into, so maybe it's me. Well, no, I mean, you know, another example is salary levels for people expected to have graduate degrees. And, and how low the salaries are. Yeah, that's what I was getting ready to say. It's like this, you know, Birmingham Path and I made coming upon starting each position at each institution. One of the issues, you know, was the preparators and the registrars saying to leadership, I don't know how many more times we have to say this, but it's too much work, right? We are overworked. It is too much. I remember in at Birmingham, you know, it was it, the phrase was like, it is inhumane. 
you know, and this whole idea that like directors or like I said, again, senior staff or curators can have these huge ideas and there's no consideration, you know, or very little, you know, consideration to the people who are actually making those ideas come to fruition. And like you said, you know, I would say all the time, like, how are we having, you know, you sit in meetings and people are like, oh, there are white collar workers in, you know, in museums, and there are blue collar workers in museums. And you're like, everybody in registration and conservation in, in the prep, the prep department or installation department, like has graduate degrees. So how are we making, you know, that bifurcation? And, and so much of it, you know, it's just, it's just absolutely ludicrous. You know, it's just really ludicrous and it's just, it's a complete and utter mythology. And that was, again, something as a, you know, just looking at as a curator and kind of quote unquote, as like this outsider, you know, I was like, it's all a lie. Like everybody's running around like the really exotic chicken, you know, like holding up, <laughs> you know, the fact that this is an exotic chicken. And I'm like, it's a duck. Like, I don't know what the rest of y'all are looking at, you know, <laughs> but it is very clearly a duck. And that was fascinating to me, you know, and it's like the maintenance of the lie is what kind of holds the institutions together, you know. So that oppression and discrimination is built into the lifeblood of the institution itself because the institutions alone, right, when you think about white cultural hegemony, right, and white supremacy, uphold a lie. People don't like to talk about it in that language, you know, or don't like to, to state it in that way. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely. I mean, I think that museum directors who think that they have hired a black curator and that they've done something are the problem. It's like, okay, got that, you know, it's like, got check the diversity box, you know, and then they like move on to whatever, you know, the next thing is. And I've worked very hard in my career to push back against being the kind the token, you know, diversity hire, you know, as James Baldwin says so eloquently, like I am not your Negro. What I did not take into account, which is kind of, which is what I'm struggling with now, or, you know, just trying to give myself a break from is the trauma from all of that. Cause it's, it's, it's grueling, you know, it, it really is, you know, and you have to have the courage, you have to, you know, have the bravery. Sometimes it, you know, I can't tell you how many times where I just have to say, okay, go, you know, <laughs> you know where I have to like kind of prep, you know, prop myself up. Cause I'm just like, if I say this, I'm gonna get fired, you know, but, I, but I'm also like, if I don't say it, my, it crushes, it's soul crushing. Kelly Morgan. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.